Hey everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined today by two of my faves. I have Natasha Mascarenas here. How are you doing? It is rainy in New Jersey, but um, you know we're nearing mac and cheese season, so I am, I'm happy. I feel like because we've had the first snow of the year, we're into mac and cheese season. <laughs> You're already you know? there. I feel like that's the temperature threshold. What is what is mac and cheese season? It's just anytime once it starts getting cold enough that you can warrant no longer eating salads for lunch because you just need like warm <laughs> in your soul. And that's I mean, based on the rain, I feel like I'm, we're there. We're we're there. This is this is the season when just salad moves to the mac and cheese menu. Yes. yes. <laughs> and that other voice you hear in your ears right now is Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how are you holding up now that it is apparently macaroni season? You know, it, it's funny because I eat mac and cheese every week at my salad bar. So I feel like every season is mac and cheese season. I mean, every week is shark week if you try hard enough. Let's get on to topic, though, before we scare everyone away. As a quick <laughs> overview, because we provide these now before... We dig too far into individual topics. We are going to talk about some media-related startups. We're going to dig into VC risk appetite in the kind of the current moment and where we're going next. And then we have some notes on some upcoming IPOs, and we're going to cap off with a little bit of WeWork SoftBank stuff because those are words we have not said on the show in far too long. Now, kicking off in the media space, there's a company that is doing that Web 2.0 thing when they drop all of the um, vowels, I think. So here we have a company called Workforce, I think. Natasha, what 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 is this misspelled company? So Workforce, Workforce without the O's because offices are optional and therefore the O's in the name are also optional. Hey, oh. Oh my God. <laughs> but before um, we make too much fun of the name, um, they are a new media publication focused on remote work and everything that encompasses that. They were started, full disclosure, by Jesse Chambers, who used to work as the VP of monetization for AOL when it still owned TechCrunch. Me and him never like crossed paths, but he said that he knew how to build a digital media brand. Why not start it? And he did so by living the remote work lifestyle in a 27-foot Airstream for two years and is now launching this content-focused publication. Just focus on that. So I know Jesse, smart guy. He was a higher up at AOL when I was at TC the first time in the pre-Verizon days. My memories of him is usually of him walking very quickly across a room. So I think he's usually in motion. So I can't imagine <laughs> him being in an Airstream for that amount of time. He must have exploded. But to be clear, though, I do think that a publication focused on this area might do well. Danny, a couple of weeks ago, was telling us how you can go read like really good fintech focused publications. I'm not surprised to see this niche get its own you know, treatment to get a real publication focused on it. 
I'm curious to see how often they're going to post and how deep they can go on remote working. In two years, what's left to write? I don't know, but so we'll see. But I like the idea, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think there's a huge amount of work around culture, right? If you think about Harvard Business Review, which is a very, very successful publication brand, there's a huge amount of focus on corporate culture. People are trying to figure out how to manage a company, organize a company, how to build leadership. And I, I feel like it can be easy uh, with a medium post to say, gee, you know, here's how remote work works. I think if you go behind the, the scenes and kind of peel back that onion, it's really hard. You know, how do you set up Slack channels? I, I feel like at TechCrunch every six months, we have the uh, Slack channel culling yes. in which we knock out all of our Slack channels and completely redo our entire collaboration model. And the answer is, is like we keep iterating, but I don't think we're at like 2.0 or 3.0. I feel like we're always at 1.0 beta and we've never <laughs> made any progress. So, so maybe workforce, which is without the O's, but with the E. So don't say all no vowels. There is a vowel. There's a knee at the end. Um, Thank you for you that, know, I, I, I think there's an opportunity for like a brand to actually like improve people's thoughts around remote work and how to make it work. I'll add to like, obviously, it's readership is very clear right now. And I think it would have been easy for workforce just to cater to tech workers. But I want to give snaps to them for being ambitious enough to also focus on content for blue collar workers. But they also have a job board that is part of the publication. And that job board also kind of expresses all the different ways to do remote work. So, you know, hopefully that will spur some conversations more than like your classic enterprise SaaS remote work tool that is only for one sales team in San Francisco. According to our notes doc, this is in collab with an LA-based studio. Do we know who that is? It's in my notes. I didn't include the name in the story, but it, they... It's, it's that one studio in LA that, that, only... oh, yes. that does content. <laughs> right. it I think it was formerly known as Quibi. <laughs> oh, no. Danny, there's no need to be rude to the which, poor which is dead. which is being rebranded without the eyes as quib. No, there, it would be cube. Cube. Yeah, it'd be QB. <laughs> oh my god. Anyways, why are they working with the studio, Natasha? They're gonna create some content videos of how remote work case studies look, how certain tools work. This isn't the most exciting part of the product, in my opinion. I'm much more caring about the articles that they're going to be working with. They have a contributor network. And to answer your earlier question, Alex, I think they're going to be posting daily multiple times okay, just with freelancers. This fits into the niche content stuff we've talked about on the show here and there. Their juggernaut raised capital a couple of weeks back. I think everyone here is kind of a big fan of that little company and its model. Also, we've seen Quartz recently get kind of spun back out of Uzobase, kind of purchased by its founders going on the market on its own, kind of doing its Quartzian thing. Quartz has always had a slightly different flavor than other business publications because they they just kind of do their own game. And I like to see that niche still get its jam. And then in the podcasting world, another niche media element, a big deal this week, another Spotify podcasting acquisition for that, Danny, that kind of podcasting range, 100 to $300 million. This one's $235 million. Tell us about Megaphone. Megaphone, I, I think, started actually as... as Panoply or, or Panoply, which was out of the Slate group. And originally, I believe it started as a content house. So it was focused on building shows around Vox. Um, they also worked with BuzzFeed and the Wall Street Journal. And then I think over time, they learned that content is hard. I think we all <laughs> learned that. And they sort of pivoted into being an ad network. And so they're, they're helping with analytics placements, actually selling the ads, sort of doing what, what display advertising did for the web, you know, providing a business model that's not subscription um, around the podcast space. You know, uh, Spotify bought them, uh, as you said, in between 100 and 300. The, the quoted price was 235 million bucks. Um, and that's like what? I think the third or fourth podcast play that Spotify has made, both on the, the, the content side with Joe Rogan, 
getting a hundred million dollar contract. And then Spotify has also acquired a couple of different studios and other technology plays. So clearly tripling, quadrupling down in the podcast space. Yeah, I mean, zooming out even, a lot of media companies are putting eggs in the basket of back-end infrastructure as what's going to be a sustainable part of their business. We saw the Washington Post do this, which has been pretty successful. And, and it's this growing conversation that content is definitely a commodity. And the exclusive deals that Spotify is grabbing is probably like very much eating up the market of competitors who are trying to also do content. It's it's like Triller and TikTok. It's like if Triller can't afford to do exclusives and TikTok will always just get the better the better content. Yeah, distribution matters. One thing I, I saw though in a chart was that Spotify's market share in the world, this was last night when I was looking up Spotify stats, I forgot we were going to talk about on the show. I was just prepping by accident. I actually seen some market share declines globally in the last, I think it was 12 or 18 months. And now to be clear, Spotify is still growing its user base, paid subscribers, et cetera. But the market that it's working in is getting larger as well. I wonder if Spotify is really trying to defend its long-term market share because in the music world, everyone has access to the same 50, 60 million songs. This is their way to really stand out, maybe have some pricing flexibility to have better margins, to have a little more control over their revenues. It makes a lot of sense to me. I'm just disappointed that podcast companies are never worth more than roughly $300 million. And they're probably being bought for business chances, not revenue, right? Oh, I, I think one of the stats we have here, which I, I think is just completely nuts, is that Megaphone apparently is selling just a tenth, 10% of their ad inventory they have available on the platform. Now that's supposed to go up to, according to our notes here, 70% with Spotify's acquisitions. So Spotify's ad sales team, you know, they're able to do that. They obviously, if you, if you don't pay for premium on Spotify, you do have an ad network. So they, they're going to be able to plug some of that inventory into podcast. But like to me, that I think is part of the, the the question here is like, why is that ad inventory not being purchased? They have 5,500 shows, tons of inventory. You know, why aren't there buyers in that market? I don't know. I think, you know, this is the same question I ask about the, the internet. Like, I watch sports on TV and I, I see the same like six ads and I'm like, guys, you do know that the first time I heard this, I blocked it out and I've had you on mute ever since. <laughs> but that, that ad market is enormous. It's worth tens of billions of dollars. And yet an advertisement on the internet is worth nothing. And I've never understood the, the, the reason why television ads are, are the gold standard of value for brands, but the web is worth nothing. And this is the same question with the podcast. People are currently listening to us right now on, on, on your headphones or in your car, wherever you are. And we're talking directly to you. You would think that this medium would be the strongest place for advertisements because you're not distracted probably, but instead it's not. And so I, I'm curious if it's just a mismatch in, in supply and demand and then brands are loath to change tack away from bombarding me on NBA reruns. You know, it may be a disappointment from the podcast world, right? We're, we're still expecting this kind of unicorn outcome. It is a really good exit, though, in the ad network space. I mean, ad tech is one of these categories that has just been eviscerated over the years as, as Google and Facebook has sort of drained all revenues and money out of that market. So I actually took it as a strong sign of like, you can actually build an ad network even in 2020. It's still worth hundreds of millions of bucks. It's just not the big two that are going to buy you in that duopoly. As a kind of related aside, this is all making me think about when billboards were a thing. Like a year it's still, ago, still a thing, still a thing. But a year ago, you couldn't walk down San Francisco, any street in San Francisco without like being bombarded with Breck signs. And yeah. if what's the other one ease? And there was like a Burning Man <laughs> billboard in North Beach. And it was just like this crazy, insane scene. And, and I remember being like joking about it. But then I actually wrote a story about how this this format is like the only way these companies are, I guess, trying to get some extra attention. And they're just like meme memeing themselves a little bit. I mean, I'll joke. I mean, Brex also bought a cafe. So I don't know if their strategy was the <laughs> yeah. smartest. But I will say, I mean, one of the more productive, I mean, not that I cover the ad network space hugely, but one of the more productive spaces 
subspaces in that category is out-of-home advertising, right? So all the branded advertising. In recent years, there have been a lot of startups that have tried to figure out who's actually walking through Grand Central seeing that right. billboard, right? And, and what they're getting to is like, the people are walking to like one Vanderbilt, they're going to leave this door and they're going to see these three out-of-home <laughs> advertisings. And the people in that building are all financial people, right? So they'll all sell particular stock trades or whatnot. It's similar to how if you watch Fox News in DC, in the DC circuit and in, in the local affiliate for Fox, you're going to get a very different advertising picture because people are targeting lobbying dollars and other works for, for lawmakers and policymakers in DC. Uh, people are getting smarter about out-of-home. So it doesn't surprise me that Burning Man, which, by the way, is totally off-brand to buy a billboard in anywhere, but would target like a North Beach consumer right. to optimize their ad spend. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's put a pin on VC investments in media, which are historically risky, and talk about risk in general for VCs. You know, a question that we had while prepping for this week's show was, where are we right now? What does the venture capital market actually feel like? Is this kind of a risk on moment? Is it a bit risk off? There's been a lot of change in the last couple of weeks, it feels, with the election, the resurgence of COVID-19 around the world, possible lockdowns, changes in public markets. It's been dynamic, I want to say. So I want to turn to both of you in turn and just kind of get your general temperature on the part of the VC world you focus on is doing and how active it is. And Natasha, I'm curious what you think about the early stage space. A line I keep hearing from founders and investors alike is 90% of the world is going to go back to normal and we're going to go for the 10% that is staying in this new normal, in this virtual work, edtech-focused, fintech-focused world. And so I think it's kind of a, a cop-out answer, but it does feel a little bit more realistic than we saw in June or, or July of like the future is full remote work, Microsoft announcing forever closed offices, Twitter saying it's, you know, forever going to be this way. I feel like now people are kind of being like, oh, I mean, things are going to reopen and it's just going to be a more flexible format. So it's it's to answer the risk question. I think people are starting to prepare to be a little more grounded in their risk tolerance. Is that because they just their views of like growth for some of these startups is beginning to come down a little bit as they can kind of see the return to the old normal and therefore less focus on ed tech solutions and software and so forth? You know, the reaction to the Pfizer news on, on Monday, even though the stock markets are, are volatile, we can only weigh them so much. <laughs> I think that was still a moment where you see every ed tech stock down in some way and you realize that you can't just tout that this is how people are going to learn for the rest of their lives. I think a lot of VCs also have been telling me that the conservative times should still be your MO at the moment because you should not be going back to 2019 spending just yet. Maybe if you're Brex, you can, but not any other startup. Wow. Okay. That, that's actually more bearish than I expected to hear from you on the on the early stage side. Danny, you talked to VCs who are a little bit later on in the growthy side of things. What's the heat check over there? You know, I, I, I help informally a lot of founders fundraise. And, you know, when it was like, I would call it the post-COVID, not immediately post-COVID, where everyone was doubling down their own portfolios and trying to clean up their own previous investments, you know, from like May through August, maybe even to September, you know, it was extremely strong for fundraising. Fundraises happened so quickly. Everyone was trying to make bets. And it was basically like, hey, there's going to be like eight or nine categories, like remote work, living outside the suburbs, redoing home mortgages and a bunch of fintech products, um, remote work in companies, you know, what kind of collaboration tools. And like everyone got their bets out really fast in all these spaces. Now in the last couple of weeks, you know, when I talk to founders, the fundraisers are just slower. I think a lot okay. of folks are like, you know, burnt through a lot of capital this summer very quickly making investment decisions. You know, we've talked on the show before about how partner meetings were being held at 10 p.m. the night of to try to make investment deals as quickly as possible. 
And I think a lot of folks now are doing this kind of end of year reassessment of like, wow, we, we just made a bunch of deals and bets this year. We've moved really, really fast. We're going to talk about Hop in a bit, but like some companies have gone from seed round to a $2 billion, you know, unicorn valuation <laughs> in like six months. And like, we need to like, just wait for the shakedown to take place, right? To see what actually is going to stick. And so my, my sense is, is things have gotten slower, certainly at the seed in A. The growth is still what it is as always, right? There's a ton of capital. If you have the numbers, those checks come in rapid fire. If you don't have the numbers, I think it's harder today than it was before. I think there was much more flexibility. I think we've seen, you know, not just in the last two weeks, but in the last, you know, two months, some of the valuations have come down to earth. People are realizing that the whole world is not going to move to remote permanently, particularly if a vaccine is going to come. Supposedly with Pfizer, we're going to have millions of doses of vaccine by the end of the year. That's six weeks from now. If we are actually back to normal by oh June, God. let's pray. But if we are coming back to normal in June, like that actually is not enough time for culture to actually have changed all that significantly. We're all going to go back to schools in buildings. <laughs> We're all going to get on school buses. We're all going to commute on the subway back to our offices in Midtown. Like nothing really is going to change. And the exception, I think, is actually ironically events. Yeah, which we'll get to in just a second. Natasha, one thing that I've been keeping tabs on in the risk on side of the early stage market has been rolling funds, because to me, they're kind of like a, a, almost like they're, they're the SPAC of VC. They're this weird kind of thing that, you know, people are using to kind of hack their way into the system. Uh, I, I'm curious if you're still getting a lot of emails about rolling funds that are being, sorry for this, rolled out lately. <laughs> I, I haven't heard too many like pitches, which I think is good because it's not necessarily always newsworthy for a rolling fund to start because it requires such a low lift. Danny wrote a piece on Spearhead that he should chime in on too, is that so many people are now going from one to $5 million and can now invest. And so the question of 2021 and onward is like, how do you get from five to 50 million? And so mm. we're just going to see pre-seed feel really exciting. And like, there's so much access but unfortunately, it's going to completely dry up. There's a, just a ton of new entrants, but not across all stages. Jenny, do you want to talk us through this uh, this spearhead effort, this $100 million that's going into apparently a, a lot of smaller individual rolling funds? Is that right? Spearhead's uh, hitting its three-year anniversary. So they, they were here well before rolling funds were a thing. Founded by Naval Ravikant, who founded AngelList, and also you know AngelList basically created this whole concept of the rolling fund in the, the last couple of months. And then also Jeff Fagnan over at Accomplice, who was one of the only VC investors in AngelList over the years. And, and Spearhead's goal was to really help founders make the transition from founding a company to also learning the craft of venture capital investing. The goal was, one, a lot of founders obviously know other smart founders, so they have access. Most founders want to take money from other founders because they know what's going on. They have the intelligence and the, and the smarts to help them with their company. And then there's a sort of side benefit as you're building a company that if you're learning how to invest as well, you get better at sort of understanding the other side of the table. There's more empathy for the investor perspective. They launched their fourth fund this week, $100 million vehicle. Half of that is devoted to follow-on investment. Half is devoted to basically giving a million dollars to about 12 to 15 people who are founders to get them started on their first funds. And then the remainder balance of that fund is actually going to be used to stake new vehicles. And that's new with this fourth fund. For the folks who are successful in their first couple of investments, Spearhead will actually give you a stake of, let's say, three to five to seven million bucks for that new vehicle. So if you want to raise 30, they may stake the first 25% of that fund. And that's actually really huge because we've talked a lot about access in venture in recent months and recent years. One of the biggest challenges to getting started in venture is just getting the capital to get going. Rolling funds made it a little bit easier. Um, I think actually having people who are willing to put serious money and stake a full official fund, that remains a big gap for a lot of folks. And that's where Spearhead wants to sort of bridge. It feels like, though, we're seeing here innovation 
in capital formation as opposed to innovation in technology or business model or the actual startup stuff. And I feel like this is a sign of the times there's so much capital sloshing around that, of course, there's $100 million for this relatively kind of three-part effort, I suppose, from Spearhead. But I, I don't know. I, I don't get too excited about it. I want to hear about the company that has super sick gross margins and is growing at a thousand percent a minute versus like how, <laughs> how some would, rich Alex. people, well, no, but this, this is just how some rich people are going to take some money to give it to some other rich people so they can invest it. So that way all the rich people can have more money. Like I just, them, you know, I, 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 uh, I guess I'll disagree, I, I, a little, I, I, I'll disagree a little bit just because I, think I disagree. That, like, but Natasha can go okay. first and yell at, at Alex first. <laughs> well, I think that, I mean, let's, let's see how and who they invest in. First and foremost, if they invest in a diverse group of people, then I think, Alex, you'll get your dream because they'll start investing into more. Those diverse fund managers will, managers will invest in more diverse companies who will have better returns as so many headlines and data dumps show us. And so that's, I guess, like the the place where I find joy and hope is like, OK, well, if they are promising to do this, at least let them invest in a diverse group of fund managers who will uplift the companies that did, never got the chance to get to that 100 million AR goal because they weren't white guys. I, I think the key thing to remember here is is in much the way that AD, uh, AWS made, you know, starting a company cheap instead of Google or Facebook had to buy servers in a data farm and actually like literally install hardware in order to keep their sites alive. You know, AWS really lowered the barriers to entry. I think the same thing is happening in venture. There were huge barriers to entry in venture. You first have to be rich to be a venture capitalist and, and not just rich, but like filthy rich. You know, you have to put up if you're raising a $300 million fund. That's a three to $8 million commit for that partnership, right? Every partner is putting in a million or two million bucks to make that work. I think Rolling Funds, Spearhead, uh, Chamath also raised a, a fund or, or some sort of vehicle to help sponsor and start Rolling Funds this week. It's apparently the du jour on top of SPAC's menu item. But I, I do think that lowering the barriers to entry opens it up to a bunch of more diverse types of people. They can, they can be younger people who haven't made their money yet. It can be underrepresented groups who have not had access previously, who have not maybe had as much access to capital and wealth building over the last decades and centuries. And that is good. Like, I think the more people who enter this market, the more you can find folks who are willing to empathize with your own startup, your own story. And that's ultimately good for everyone in the, in the marketplace. If all that happens, if they invest in diverse founders, and if those people put money into diverse companies, I will be wrong. But until I, I am, that happens, that is just optimism and faff on top of my factual point that it's rich people playing around with more money to hopefully have more money. I until it does the, those deals, I don't care. I love the fact that I am no longer the cynical, cranky bastard <laughs> on this program. It's amazing. Like, I think this is the first time that Alex uh, has taken my mantle. You can take it. So what's funny is before you were on the show, Denny, I was you. And then you came on and were somehow worse than me. And then I became somehow this middle option in, in the three of us. So You're the public option be, in our healthcare plan, yes. Lovely to be back on top or at the bottom, depending on this case. Let's let's talk about early stage valuations a little bit in the lens of Hopin. This was the kind of the round of the week, I feel. And when we're talking about risk, to me, this is pretty risk on. And, you know, Natasha, you were talking a lot about how the world might go back to being the way it was sooner than some people thought. But here is people putting money into Hopin, a virtual events platform at a staggering valuation. So the round was 125 million at a two point, I think one, two, five billion dollar valuation. So we can all see it was a $2 billion pre and slightly more than that post. I did a little digging before the show, according to PitchBook data, it's series A, which was $40 million earlier this year. I think it was in June. Valued the company at about 285 million. So, like, what is that, Danny? Like seven X somewhere in there. 
just a staggering amount of money. So I, I want to get Natasha first impressions on, do you think this is a sound investment given kind of what you've now heard about where the world may be going next year? I think whether or not attendees prefer it, virtual events will continue to happen because they save companies so much money. Now that companies know they can save so much money, they will they will do that. And I think that it's not you know rocket science to believe that there will be a huge winner in the space and that Zoom hasn't filled all the needs for it. So I, it makes a lot of sense. It seems like everyone's going toward Hopin, but I mean, who knows? There's always a quieter competitor and I'm much more excited about that one because my experience with Hopin wasn't anything that I was like, this is the future. I was just like, okay, you were first and smart and someone can probably do that too. I think it's a great venture vet. You know, th this is what venture looks like. Is the future massive virtual events with millions of people and, and Hopin's going to be the next Shopify with, you know, billions in revenue across thousands and thousands of events or not? That's the beauty of it. I don't know if I would agree with the price. I think the price was market determined. I think a lot of people want to be in this company. I think emerged as like, the Zoom of virtual events in a way that Zoom didn't turn out to be the, the Zoom of virtual events. You know, it, it manages a lot. And there's a ton of bolt-on acquisitions you can imagine going on with Hopin, right? Today, it's just kind of managing the actual expo experience, if you will. It handles membership logins. You can join groups. You can like connect through the, to your videos. But like it could do ticketing. It can do registration. It can do networking and matching. Like there's a ton of more things that it can potentially add that will add revenues and juice the numbers. But like fundamentally, it's a macro bet. Like, will events in the future be virtual? So not virtual, though. The whole bet is hybrid. So that, that's one mistake that I made. I was talking to the CEO, I think it was Monday this week before the round kind of was announced. And I was asking this question, I'm like, look, the vaccine stuff came out today. Everyone's kind of talking about going back to normal. Is that a problem for Hopin? And he was like, no, because we were originally a hybrid platform. That was our first bet. We were going to be a hybrid. And so he was like, if the world goes that direction, we think that's fine. And I was like, okay, well, valid. I don't, I, Danny, you and I have been at TC together for like a combined long number of years, right? We've done a lot of disrupts, which is our big conference. We've done them on different continents. Do you think that we're going to do those hybrid down the road? I don't I mean, know I what a hybrid, I don't know what hybrid means. I, I hybrid like means this, there's, an, there's an IRL component and a virtual component. But so if, we, if I can do it IRL, how, like why would I do it virtually as well? Well, presumably you'd have some subset of the content available virtually for a lower price point. I'm just curious if, if, if we think that we're going to do, to do this because we're a relatively good test case for the proposition. You know, I think one of the things that we don't uh, estimate enough is like how who, the actual producers of these shows, like how, what, is, what is enjoyable for them, right? We're obviously very customer centric. We really focus on people, but like half the fun of building an event is actually like meeting people live. Like we enjoy doing the in-person experience. The virtual experience is just a piss poor comparison. So I, I, I don't know if like uh, hybrid means. I think it's great that they think that they started that way. I, I think it's similar to how remote work goes. It's like, well, we're a hybrid. Some people are in the office. Some people are not. And it's like, well, people in the office have like 100 times more power than the people not in the office, right? You either have to go all in or all out. It's very hard to be in the middle. And I think we're going to see the exact same thing in events. You the either have... You can charge different amounts of money for this. So I, I agree. Like, would yeah. I rather go to disrupt in person? Hell yes, I've been to a bajillion of them. But if you were like, for 150th the price, you person in country far away from where the event is, do you want to watch the main stage for 50 bucks? I think the answer is going to be hell yes. And then I think that expands your audience, your reach. And, you know, uh, we won't solve this today, but just for some context for, for everyone out there, Hopin has grown from zero ARR to 20 million ARR in about nine months. So, at least the current market works for them. We'll see how the growth pans out when, uh, when Danny can get back to his midtown office and uh, 
really spread his joy and love around the uh, Verizon Media Group headquarters. I was, I was just going to add that I was speaking to the founder of a virtual HQ, which we can talk about next week because I think that's when the story will be live, but just as a teaser. <laughs> um, and I'm so excited to hear Danny and Alex's perspective on it. But the Dayton Mills was basically saying, like, we can't recreate spontaneity as a virtual anything. We can just create an environment that allows and like promotes spontaneity. And I think that will be the, the deciding factor of a lot of these like virtual event platforms. Hoppin, for example, had this like matching tool that would like put you on video, um, a random person who was at Disrupt. And I loved that. And I think that like those little hacks and maybe like slight product tweaks will actually go a really long way with with virtual anything platforms. Yeah. And they're hiring I, a lot of engineers. They have a lot of aspirations on the product side. So like what we're seeing now to me is is kind of like the table stakes version of it. It's cool, as you said, Natasha, but it's not like, holy shit. So I, I'm curious what... The yeah, I, I think I would double down on this. It's all about product development. You you have to believe yeah. in a vision in which this is 10 times better in the next five to eight years. If more people yeah. have augmented reality headsets, they have their Oculuses and assuming Facebook doesn't lock you out after, you know, inactivity and also cuts the cord and also prevents you from logging in. I'm not bitter, but like, <laughs> yeah, I think no that worries. there's a lot of new technologies. LiDAR sensors are now in the iPhone. You know, how much until we actually have much more sense of virtual space? I think we're just getting started. Is Hopping going to be the winner? My concern is they're like the Yahoo of this. They're the ones who are going to like cut the, the brush, but they're not the ones who are going to get through the forest. But, you know, uh, there's a lot of lessons learned. So we'll have to see. It just feels like a sexual reference somehow. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> I just, just felt vaguely uh, inappropriate. Uh, on the VR front, though, I talked to the CEO about this because I had the same idea. You know, what what is this look like in a VR setting? And he said, you know, we're not going to build that ourselves. I think I'm paraphrasing here a lot. So Johnny, don't shoot me. But like, we're going to have a platform and that stuff can plug into it. So they're trying to make sure they have an open goal on all future tech that might plug into the space. And I'm curious to see if that's the right way to go or if they should be building first party solutions. But we shall see. We have to let hop and go. It's a big round. It's exciting, but we don't have any more facts. Those are all of our facts. So we're going to move on to staying with the risk theme this week, the IPO market. Um, Natasha, we saw this piece from CNBC today that we have a number of companies shooting to go public before the end of the year. Who is on the docket? for the next couple of weeks. So we have Airbnb, which I'm not going to say anything about, DoorDash, Roblox, and Wish. Four big companies, four potentially huge IPOs, but it doesn't mean anything to me, honestly. How, how not? <laughs> well, I just feel like what a, it's, it's a very like light claim. I don't know. I, not to, I'm not like dunking on, on, on CNBC's reporting, but like, okay, this has been the story for a while, right? It's kind of a confirmation, Danny, of the timeline that we've discussed offline, that if these companies are going to go public, they're running low on days to get it done inside of 2020. It, it, we, we have so little time left. You don't want to go do a roadshow through Thanksgiving, through Christmas, through New Year's, into the new year. And then, you know, don't forget, we have a presidential inauguration January 20th, which is going to get, I, I think, quite uh, news driven, right? So like, there's like a very weird calendar here. If they're going to go, they need to go like literally today, tomorrow, next week. Like that's it. Otherwise, you're, you're running into multiple holidays and that's going to be pretty miserable. I am excited, though. I mean, to me, the, the key that's interesting with these four companies is you have Wish, which is sort of this, I guess, long of the tooth, but has always done super well of like drop shipping cheap stuff from China market uh, e-com. And it, it's a good counter comparison to like Amazon, yeah. eBay and some of the others. You have Airbnb and DoorDash, which are these sorts of coronavirus recovery stories. And then you have Roblox, which is like kids gaming and entertainment. You know, with all the kids not going to school, my guess is Roblox's growth numbers have been amazing. 
Amazing. Because no one's actually learning anything. They're learning in Roblox. So to me, I'm actually really excited because I think we're going to get like a, a nice like points on the spectrum of, of companies, you know, some enterprise, some non-enterprise, et cetera. But then comes the excuse, which is Airbnb was supposed to have filed by now. It was supposed to have happened, I believe, actually today. And instead, they pushed it for a week. And Natasha, I don't know how much stock you gave this, but their excuse was the election. So on a scale of zero to 10, how much do you believe that excuse? Zero. I mean, <laughs> as Danny said in our prep meeting yesterday, it's like, oh, you didn't know there was an election happening? I think that's why I'm actually not excited at all, because I don't think it's going to happen. Like, I actually don't think any of them are going to file. And maybe it's just my trust issues, but I, I just don't imagine anything <laughs> happening. <laughs> I mean, look, Airbnb is a non-political company that has never had to work with regulations, cities, states, or, or federal governments at all. So, I mean, it's understandable that they woke up on Wednesday and were like, whoa, like that was a big thing that happened yesterday. Like we should delay the election and our IPO. I, I, um, I think two of the four will go. I, I think actually what's interesting yeah. is we had this huge IPO window back in August. You know, remember with the, the, the day of six S1 filings, we've had a handful of companies since then. But what's interesting is we just, I think a lot of folks wanted to avoid the election. There was an election kind of arbitrage bump, uh, including Third Point uh, made a bunch of money. A lot of folks lost a lot of money on the election. And I don't think a lot of these IPOs wanted to touch kind of that issue. Now that we're past that, I think a couple of these folks are going to want to lock in, I think, what are going to be great numbers because of coronavirus. And as a vaccine comes in, the, the numbers may not be as great next year. So there's yeah. a nice little window for these folks. Yeah. And then just as, as a data point, we've talked a lot about how we know that DoorDash has had a big year because we've seen Uber's delivery numbers. And therefore, we kind of just know that they're doing big, big stuff. But one thing that caught my eye was during the, the vaccine sell-off of certain companies that might not be as accelerated in the future in a post-COVID era, Grubhub took a hit. And I wonder if that's a proxy for the valuation of DoorDash. And if it is, it just got repriced down a couple of notches. So it may have wanted to go public actually a couple of weeks ago before the vaccine news came out when there was more hype about a longer term boom in the value of delivery companies. But I'll throw my two cents into the hat. I'll say three are going to go and I'm going to say DoorDash, Airbnb, Roblox, and not Wish. And I'm saying those three because those are the ones I want to read the most. So I'm going to vote yeah. for the ones that I, that I want to get my <laughs> I, hands I on. I tell. I was like... <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's just pure bias. All right, guys, we have not talked about WeWork much in, I, I want to say ages. Like this, one of the biggest risk on we bets cleansed. of all time. It's a juice we, we cleanse. We did cleanse. Yeah. yeah. It was an Adam Newman cleanse. It's back a little bit. Danny, can you give us just the, the briefest thumbnail on, on the IPO return and the possibility of, quote, profit from WeWork? The CEO of WeWork came out this week and said that they're targeting profitability next year and therefore targeting an IPO again. And it was one of these wonderful things where it's like, I think this is year 10 of targeting profitability for WeWork. To be fair, it was profitable, I think, for one year back in like, what, 2013 or something like this. There's a little note. What, what's fascinating to me is to come out, I, I think they're trying to counter this narrative because, you know, two weeks ago, there was Billion Dollar Loser was, was published, which is the story of WeWork, a good book. I, I think they want to remind people that like, they can be profitable. This is in the future. We have no idea if anyone's going to an office next year. It's, it's actually one of these stories that I, I read and I was like, why are you even trying to give this narrative right now? Like the only way to actually give this narrative is with actual proof, actual evidence, actual revenues, actual facts, like make the argument. Otherwise, put up or shut up, I think is the term we use uh, in journalism. And, and that's my view when we work. And I'll use my favorite factoid from Billion Dollar Loser to transition us into the next section, which is apparently Adam Newman was able to convince SoftBank to invest $3 billion in just 30 minutes. And I think that is absurd. When, when I when I do consulting, I always bill a hundred million a minute. Um, I, I that's think what that's I was going to say. Ah, oh, you stole I my math fact. I beat you to the fact. punch, Alex. I beat you to the punch. 
This is why I need to be ruder on the show and not let Danny take it when I want to talk next. Because I was going to say $100 million a minute because we knew that the Vision Fund deployed $100 million a day during its life. And Danny did that math back uh, with Armand back in the day. That was a fun one. That was a that fun was one. A fun one. That means they had 30 days of funding back into 30 minutes. What did they do the other 29 days? They just hang around? <laughs> I would take a nap, frankly. I, I think there was like literally monkeys with like darts throwing things and they're like, $100 million, whoever hits, you know, the logo. But SoftBank was also in the news, Alex. So, so their earnings, I think, were, what, Monday Japanese time. What happened there? Yes, SoftBank is in the news because they had a much better couple of quarters. If you recall back to the kind of April timeframe when SoftBank dropped its fiscal 2019 numbers, which is kind of the year that ends March 31 for them, strange calendar, they had a lot of pain in their results because a lot of the Vision Fund bets just weren't doing that well. There was a lot of carnage and a lot of doubt about Masayoshi Sun the kind of head of SoftBank Group and all of its efforts, and open questions about what the future of Vision Fund 1's returns were going to be. Now, six months later, we're looking at the results for the time period ending September 30th, and the results are much better. Some of their exited companies saw a lot of value gains as public stocks. They saw a lot of value gains in their private companies, and the Vision Fund appears to be kind of back in the black. It's positive. It's making returns. Now, it hasn't put up a bonkers level of, of IRR, Danny, but certainly it's not been a catastrophe. And I think when you go back to the early days, when that IPO was in trouble, when that IPO got pulled, when the vibration of the company got, got hit, everyone thought that the Vision Fund was just kind of screwed because how could it take a loss that large and still be standing? But it turns out that things are going medium at the Vision Fund, which is a huge improvement from catastrophe, which is what it looked like before. So I'm not saying it's going great, but certainly it's doing better than, than I anticipated. I, I, I think, you know, the last year has been total retrenchment for, for SoftBank, right? And I... I... Yeah, if you look at Masayoshi Son over the last, you know, two decades, right? At one point, he was the richest person in the world. He's lost, I think, the most money of any single human in the history of the planet, you know, losing almost $100 billion. I think the Vision Fund was like his comeback story. It ran into a huge amount of trouble, lots of debt. And then, you know, SoftBank has gone through like total retrenchment, right? It sold off Sprint and merged it with T-Mobile. It is selling off its ARM division into NVIDIA. It's going through regulatory approvals now. It's rejiggered the Vision Fund, which apparently is moving to Abu Dhabi, according to reports in the Financial Times and elsewhere, you know, step by step. They're also, I mean, not that we care about Japanese telecoms, but like the core of SoftBank is a telco and it is rejiggering it in new competition with some new entrance into the Japanese telco market. So like, I, I, it's just a rebuilding year. You know, it's, it's like any kind of sports metaphor. This is, it's just not a good year for SoftBank and you're just rebuilding the team. The other news that came out of this week's announcement was that Rajiv Mishra, who is the head of the Vision Fund, is off the board of SoftBank. And Marcelo Clerc, who's a longtime lieutenant for Masayoshi-san, who, who ran Sprint, is also off the board. You know, there's a, a corporate governance change. Elliot has kind of come in. I don't think Elliot is, like, influential to actually make these decisions, but the fact that they're basically going along with uh, uh, Elliot's plan, I, I think, is like a cooperative deal. Well, guys, listen, we have to stop there. We're a little bit over time. But uh, generally speaking, we talk about risk in the VC market. It seems to be more risk on than risk off, but with a little bit of fear in the post-vaccine era. So we'll see what happens next. But we are back Monday morning, unless someone files to go public tomorrow. But uh, if that doesn't happen, we'll talk to you guys after the weekend. Bye. There, I, I had a conversation with someone who, who talking, like Natasha said, like one book. They were like, but there is only one book you need to read. And I was like, oh. Was the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> that book is, dude, Plot that book twist. is so good. Plot twist. <laughs>